Today's scripture reading is from the book of Romans, chapter 12, verses 1 to 2, from the ESV version. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. So, this is God's word. Second translation was from the Mandarin, which is in honor of Selena Wang, who will be baptized, you may have noticed, in your bulletin in the 11 o'clock hour. Father, may the words of my lips and the meditations of all of our hearts be acceptable in your sight. O Lord, our strength and our Redeemer. Amen. When I was a boy, my family vacationed in the mountains of western Maryland at a state park I knew as Harrington Manor. It was there that I learned to swim and row a boat and make elderberry jam and hunt snipes and explore a haunted house at night. And it was there that I also learned to play the game Monopoly. By almost any standards, Monopoly is an excruciating game. It was the first board game, and actually one of the few I have ever played, and I remember how excited I was to start out with $1,500 at my place and how desperately I wanted to protect it. I also remember how surprised I was to see how how eagerly my older brother and sister parted with their money to buy property. Whenever they landed on a piece of property, they would buy it. They would mortgage whatever they had. They would let their stack of money go down because, as I was to learn, they knew how to play the game. I also remember my pain when I would begin landing on their properties, first with houses on them, and then with hotels. And when almost that inevitable moment came, when I surrendered to them my last precious dollar. But through those excruciating lessons, I came to learn The secret of success in Monopoly. I learned how to play the game. I also remember when I won my first game. The thrill was indescribable. It started with a burning sensation in my stomach. It went up through my throat and it had a hot flush right in my cheeks. I didn't want the game to end. I wanted to go on forever. I wanted... I wanted everything about that moment to be bronzed. (laughs) Then came words which uh, I've learned are far more valuable 
the real lesson that I had to learn there, painful though it was to hear at the time, it says we need to gather everything up, take all the pieces up, and put them back in the box. Eventually all our games are going to come to an end. Sooner or later, the game of life we are playing is going to come to an end. All the pieces are going to be gathered up and they're going to be put back in a box. We moderns regularly forget about that, that when we are through, when it's all over, all the games we are playing are going to be put back into a box. Luke 12 records a time when Jesus is stormed by a young man who is upset that his brother isn't giving him all that he should. And Jesus, hearing him, immediately understands that he cares more about what is owed him than he cares about his brother, so he tells him a story. He tells him a story that I want to call a story about a man who always wanted more. It's the myth of wanting more. And so there was a man who worked hard, who sacrificed everything, who accomplished a great deal, who at the end of the day built barns which were swelled to overflowing. And then one day his soul was required of him and an angel comes down and he writes over that man's life, not the words we would give it, successful, high achieving, but fool. One of the most famous men of the 20th century uh, is a man who lived by the myth of more. He wanted more money, so he created companies. He wanted more sexual pleasure, so he had paramours. He wanted more thrills, so he became a pilot. He wanted more fame, so he became a movie producer. You recognize who I'm talking about? Howard Hughes. He died of the myth of wanting more. He uh, died by almost any estimations, insane, alone, emaciated, long fingernails, long hair. One of these days, um, all of the pieces are going to be put back into the box. Jesus, at the end of that story in Luke 12, shares an excruciating summary about it. He says, so it is with everyone who stores up things for themselves, but is not rich towards God. The society and the culture we live in gives us two messages. We almost can't escape them. You shouldn't be content. There's something about your life that shouldn't be content. And contentment is always just one product away. You can have it. Yale theologian Miroslav Volf says there are two ways of being rich or trying to be rich. There's the attempt to be rich by having. We can have homes and boats and money and stocks and portfolios and bulging barns. That's the richness of having. And then there's a richness of being, to be rich in love, to be rich in kindness, to be rich in mercy, to be rich in friendship and Most of the time, we live out of getting these messages together. We think we all of us want the riches of being. We know that. But we tie the riches of being up 
some way inextricably with the richness of having, and it doesn't work for us most of the time. Or we get a little bounce when we get some new stuff, but it doesn't last, and we know that. So we learn that the meaning of life, the purpose of life, according to Jesus at the end of Luke 12, is being rich towards God. So I want to examine for the rest of our moments together what it is to be rich towards God and use our text this morning. That was read from Romans, the 12th chapter, those first two verses to unpack it. We've just finished a study of the characteristics and marks of the kingdom citizen, what it looks like to be moving towards or inside the kingdom. I'm anticipating that sometime in the weeks or months ahead, we will look at another distinguishing set of characteristics that come from disciples of Jesus, which erupt their fruits of the Spirit. But our text this morning... uh, begins a chapter in which Paul is turning from theology, verses 1 to 11, towards another set of ethical characteristics of Marx. As a matter of fact, one of our visiting professors a few years ago in ethics, probably the most famous Protestant evangelical ethicist teaching today, structured his entire course around chapter 12 of Romans. So at the outset of Romans 12, we're on this cusp between theology and ethics. But the hinge goes this way. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God. The theology of the first 11 verses, 11 chapters of Romans is summed up by God's great mercies towards us. I appeal to you, on the basis of his mercies, and we're going to go in a chapter, and really in some ways the rest of the book, about being merciful. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. So before we become ethical, before we live a certain way, before we are merciful in light of God's mercy, mercy, we are to be worshipers. Or maybe to be put it more precisely, we can only be merciful as we are worshipers. The first impulse, the first instinct, the first responsibility of the Christian life is to be worshipers. And it gives the image of how that is to be by being living sacrifices. So I want to unpack that for the rest of our time together. Living sacrifices. It borrows an image from the Old Testament where we understand to be right with God to go before him. That sin requires a cost. And so an offering of a pigeon or a lamb or uh, a bull is offered. There are different kinds of offerings, but basically... They boil down to the instinct that, uh, the, the, the insight that we need to be made right with God. There's a cost to what has happened to us. But that's Old Testament. And New Testament has shared with us that perfect offering has been made once and for all as part of the mercies of God towards us. So what is distinctive about this new offering we bring? Let's look at the four words with which it is qualified. First of all, this New Testament offering, this 
sacrifice that we give is with our bodies. Now this doesn't mean with our flesh as opposed to our spirit or with our souls because verse 2 goes on and unpacks that quite clearly saying do not be transformed to this world but be transformed by the renewing of your minds. So whatever the bodies we present it is both physical and spiritual. It is our very self. We present our bodies which is is that parameter by which I present myself to the world. It is with my body that I live and move and have my being, that I engage and interact with others. We are to present ourselves, which are living bodies. Old Testament sacrifices are largely dead, but living bodies move around. They do things. They have consequences. They show acts. We are to prevent, show our spiritual worship by presenting our living bodies, which also are holy with our bodies. We hunger and thirst. Our bodies can become instruments through which we hunger and thirst for holiness, for righteousness. Your spiritual worship is presenting not your dead, but your living body towards holiness, which we reach out and hunger and thirst towards. Um, a living, holy sacrifice acceptable to God. What does acceptable to God add? I think what it adds is God. It puts God's in the, in the equation. And at the beginning and end of our life, worship, deep worship, true worship, is worship which is offered to and filled by the presence of God. John Piper is famous for putting it this way. God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in him. So the key and the essence of spiritual worship is worship which prizes God, which treasures God, which is filled by God. Two other insights here. Sunday after Sunday, we gather and give ourselves to worship services. I'm struck by the text of Acts 17 which says God is not served by human hands as though he needed anything, but by himself giving to everyone life and breath and everything. Before worship is a service we give to God, worship is a service God gives to us. He fills us with life and breath and all that we have. He is not served by human hands. This worship service is a service in which all that we are and all that we do is a response to God's great gift of himself. Here is worship. To prize and treasure and be filled with the living God. It is an ends in itself. Everything else that the church does in this life will have a season. 
it may have eternal consequences, but it will not be for eternity. There will be a time where missions will be at an end, when the time for evangelism is over, where we will know as we are known. But what the church does, which is for eternity, is worship. Worship is the ends for which every other action of the church is the means. And we abuse worship when we use it for a means to any other end. I don't say to my wife, at least if I am wise that day, dear, I delight in you so that you can prepare a particularly good dinner for me this evening. I don't delight in you for any other reason primarily than you, to be with you, to be before you. As Piper said, we, God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in him. I, uh, you all look comfortable. I'm not going to ask you to reach into your, your sitting on your pockets or in your purses. You can do this if you want to, but at least in your mind's eye, Reach into your pocket or your purse and bring out your wallet. This is the temple of the 21st century. This is where the god Mammon lives. And we live in a culture which tells us over and over again that this defines our being. This tells us who we are. This gives us our security. This gives us our purpose. This gives us our reason. That within the dictates of this leather is the message which tells us our importance and who we are and what our identity is. One of my favorite writers is Annie Dillard. She won a Pulitzer Prize, deservedly so. And in one of her essays, Journeying Towards the Pole, she describes... how you can determine that you're at the exact center of the North Pole. You know how? She writes, you take a camera and you put it on its back and you open the shutter and you leave it open for 24 hours. And if you are at the center, if you are at the axis, if you are at the place around which all things turn, then what you will see when that film is developed, or I guess now when... uh, the digitized image is decoded on a screen and pressed on paper, you will have a series of concentric circles because you are at the center of all things. Spiritual worship is when we make ourselves living sacrifices with our bodies hungering towards holiness, with all that we are and all that we have so that the record of our lives will show. The text says that you might discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. That discern, your translations will find different translations here. It really means a couple of things. It's it's a complex word. It means so that you will display and also that you will approve. It's not just something that we think about. It's something that we value. 
And when we are offering up spiritual worship, when we have learned how truly to play the game, then all that we do, all that we are, all that we have will display and show and treasure and value that Christ is the center of all things. Week after week, we have offering in this worship service. We must always remember as Christians that the primary offering has already been done. It has already been given. It has already been displayed. And all of our offerings are secondary. They are responsive. And they are one way in which we can take our identity and all that we have and release it and say, this uh, is not the temple of my life. I'm going to let go of a portion of what God has given me. I don't control it. I don't own it. I release it as one token of the way in which I display and approve and show and value that God is the center of all things. He's the center of my life. He is not a means. He is the ends. By God's grace, that is the way we are being called to learn and to play the game. Living and holy God, we pray that we might become wise enough and true enough and strong enough that we might indeed present ourselves, body and soul, as living sacrifices before you. That we might approve, which is to say display and discern who you are the center of all things. May we be satisfied in you. And may we live that and show it to others. In Jesus' name.